Daniel 7, 1 through 28. In the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. When he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in on the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among it, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and giving, given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates.
I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed over in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will rise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. The Word of the Lord. In 1939, Judy Garland starred in the film adaptation of L. Frank Baum's great novel, The Wizard of Oz. Widely regarded as a cinematic masterpiece, The Wizard of Oz has endured the test of time, captivating generation after generation of audiences. The story begins in the standard narrative form. Dorothy, a little girl from Kansas, is out to save her dog Toto after he bites this grumpy neighbor named Almira Gulch. Yeah, that name just sounds like a curmudgeon, right? With Toto in peril of being put down, Dorothy seeks to find her dog before the authorities can. Now, there's characterization, there's conflict, there's narrative tension. It's all pretty standard stuff. And in many ways, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are fairly standard stuff. The story is set in a particular place, in various particular times, under reigns of particular kings. There's a narrative tension, and the Israelite exiles are faced with challenge after challenge. And God, time after time, intervenes in specific ways to help them. But what the Wizard of Oz is most known for is not for the scenes in Kansas and for grumpy neighbors. It's what happens when a tornado strikes the town and Dorothy is swept away in a sort of dream or vision or altered state of consciousness. She's transported into a sort of place called Oz. She's still herself, but the things around her are all fantastical and bizarre. There she encounters a living scarecrow and a humanoid metallic man, and an anthropomorphic lion who, strangely enough, is a sniveling coward. She meets terrifying mutant monkeys that have wings, and there are witches and munchkins. There's an allegorical road that leads to this emerald city where they wish to encounter the supposedly all-powerful and all-knowing Oz, the leader of this land. Now, clearly, these creatures and fantastic characters are symbolic. The names are symbolic. They're supposed to mean something. But what do they mean? It will be of no surprise to you that there are at least a dozen um, theories about what the Wizard of Oz is actually about. 
Some see it as a critique of the American economy from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Others find a psychological angle, specifically the school of Carl Jung. Um, some people see Christian elements, particularly associated with John Bunyan's famous allegory, A Pilgrim's Progress. And then, ironically, another angle altogether is that of the atheists, who think that this is an allegory against the existence of God, that once the mirror is pulled back or the, the curtain's pulled back, that all you see is a sham and smoke and mirrors. My point is that when you're dealing with the genre of fantasy and allegory, it's hard to say for sure what these symbols and creatures and names all mean. Now, thankfully, uh, what we believe about the Wizard of Oz, what its true meaning is, really has no bearing on your life or my life. After all, it's just a fictitious story. But the stakes are much higher when we encounter this sort of genre of writing in the Bible. In Daniel chapters 1 through 6, for the most part, it's just narrative and prose. But what we have in, in Daniel 7 through 12 is something much more like the land of Oz than it is Kansas. The stakes are higher because what the Bible teaches actually does matter to how we live. Nations have literally gone to war with one another because of the way that they have chosen to interpret Daniel 7 and the book of Revelation. Hal Lindsey's famously inaccurate book, The Late Great Planet Earth, has sold tens of millions of copies even after falsely predicting the end of the world on several different occasions. Did you know that the government of Jamaica distributed 1,500 copies of Lindsey's book to high-ranking high leaders to get his perspective on world events? In the 1990s, Hal Lindsey was invited to speak at the Pentagon, the center of U.S. military power. How we interpret strange passages in the Bible seems to matter a lot. It has personal and world-changing influence. So how do we approach this sort of stuff? Flying lions and leopards with wings... What I hope to do for us today is to give us some strategies for reading this type of material. Then I'm going to illustrate how to use some of those strategies by looking at an example or two from Daniel 7. And finally, I want to bring us home to what I think is the main point of this passage. So let's begin with asking, what type of literature is this anyway? Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are written in a genre called apocalyptic. Now, when I say the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, what instantly comes to most of your minds? I bet you a lot of you instantly think of things like the end times or destruction or the end of the world. Now, unfortunately, that is how we in America have come to understand that word apocalypse or apocalyptic. And I say unfortunately because that is not at all what that word means. The word apocalypse comes to us directly from the Greek language, from the word apokalupsis, which means to uncover, or to reveal, or to pull back. So the book of Revelation is literally called, in Greek, the Apocalypse of John. Or, in other words, it's the Revelation of John, or more accurately, the Revelation to John. It's something that's being revealed to him to tell us. Now, this understanding is crucial because if you go into this sort of text thinking that it is referring to the end of the world, 
then your interpretive lens will shade everything you read, and you'll begin to interpret everything as having to mean something pointing to the end of the world. On the other hand, if you respect scripture and take genre seriously, you'll be asking a whole different sort of questions. Primarily, what does this text uncover? Or what does it reveal about reality? Another reading strategy is to understand that apocalyptic literature in the Bible is typically written to people who are in times of great crisis. So Daniel is written in the context of the Babylonian, Persian, and some even think the Greek oppression. Revelation is written in the context of Roman persecution against Christians. So the purpose of apocalyptic literature in the Bible seems to be to reveal what is going on in the unseen realm, or for the purpose of giving hope to the people of God. So already your paradigm of reading Daniel and Revelation may be challenged if you were taught that these passages were all about the end of the world. In reality, and in a general rule, Apocalyptic literature like Daniel 7 is meant to reveal what God sees behind the scenes and to give hope to the oppressed people of God. Now, how does it do that? Apocalyptic visions and writing aims to shock us, to evoke deep feelings and strong reactions. See, oftentimes when we are severely stressed or under attack or feeling hopeless and in despair, we begin to shut down. Our, our minds, our psyche actually has ways of protecting us from all of the, uh, the pain. And, and, and so what happens is many of us look into escapist realities, right? Or, or ways to numb ourselves from reality. So for example, during these months of quarantine, subscriptions to Netflix and other streaming services have gone way up. And I heard the prices are going up too. And so have the sales of alcohol. All of these ways of distracting and numbing a painful experience. But in this passage, Daniel has a vision of a freaking flying lion. How terrifying! As if lions weren't scary enough, now he's dreaming of lions that can fly and like swoop down on you, on your, on your head. Or, or he's thinking of leopards with wings, uh, with four heads, that, as if one leopard wasn't hungry enough to eat you up. Now it's got four. And over and over again, we read that Daniel is exhausted and greatly troubled by these visions. God has got his attention. And this brings us to a fourth strategy for understanding apocalyptic. This type of writing uses images, metaphors, and numbers symbolically. Remember, the point is to evoke an emotion or a reaction, not to aim at precision. There's all kinds of different genres in the Bible that give us very specific details. So this should caution us from trying to associate precise details to the images and the numbers and the metaphors in apocalyptic writing. In a lot of ways, apocalyptic literature is like poetry. And poetry has a way of communicating deep, evocative truth. But few of us take poetry literally. So while these kings and kingdoms in, the, in Daniel chapter 7 are described as mutated beasts, we aren't actually supposed to believe that these creatures exist or that God is an old man on a throne in a cloud. And the same is true for the numbers in apocalyptic literature. Numbers represent 
quality values, like holiness or completeness, more than they do quantity values. So in other words, they're not meant to be precise in counting things. So sometimes a poetic stream of numbers simply means a long time or a specified time instead of telling us exactly how much time and when the time starts and when the time ends. One of the most difficult things is what to make of the symbols in apocalyptic writing. And that leads us to a fifth strategy. Most images in apocalyptic writing have meaning to the original audience that is probably lost to us. So here's a modern example. Okay, on November 1st, 2020, I saw a vision. And in this vision, a possum with lasers emitted from its eyes and claws of titanium sat atop a dumpster, high and exalted. But as I looked on, one like a raccoon, having six wings and a bazooka, swept and unseated the possum taking his kingdom. Okay. Now, if someone in 2,400 years after this finds this manuscript, right? They would probably think, hey, this Chris guy is having a crazy nightmare about the midnight dumpster fights he overhears in the neighborhood sometimes. Okay. Now, what if my vision was this? On November 1st, 2020, I saw a great elephant with orange hair and a boastful horn, and it was standing atop a trampled enemy, a donkey. Or, on November 1st, 2020, I saw a great donkey with spikes on its hooves, and with great power, it kicked over the orange-haired elephant. Now, someone in the future might do their research and know that in the ancient United States of America, back when we were a country, there were two dominant political parties in the 21st century, and their symbols were the donkey and the elephant. What I am saying is that to Daniel and to his contemporaries, many of these symbols were stock images from their own religious and historical backgrounds. So symbols and fantastic elements in apocalyptic draw from known elements, and that helps people make sense of them. Now, finally, in our own Western mindset, we view the physical world as something to understand or something that we can understand. I read recently in a Smithsonian um, article uh, about someone finding a two-headed snake. And immediately when I saw that two-headed snake, my, men, my mind went to genetics and wondering which proteins got mixed up and how the genetic code got mixed up. And I was wondering what environmental conditions caused this to happen. You know, was it like pollution or, or radiation or something like that? But in the ancient Near East, people wouldn't be thinking, how did this come to be? If they saw a two-headed snake, they would say, what does this sign from above tell us about reality? I mean, they had whole books and manuals written about what different birth defects or abnormalities or anomalies in the natural world were trying to communicate to them from the supernatural world or from the spiritual world. So let's put some of these strategies into practice. And let's just look at verses 2 and 3, which say, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven, heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea different from one another. First of all, we know we're dealing with a vision. The text tells us that. And so that tips us off that we are probably dealing with something symbolic or apocalyptic. 
Then we hear of a great sea and four winds stirring up this sea. And to, to modern minds, again, I, I can pull out my phone. Actually, I can't because I'm videotaping myself on it right now. But if I grab that phone, I'll show you my weather app. I've actually got several different kinds. And because I'm into weather, sort of. I mean, aren't we all amateur weather people? We want to know if it's going to rain tomorrow or when it's going to snow and all that. And so we're tempted to read this passage and automatically just think weather and storm. To the ancient ears or readers, th this is a terrifying scene. In both Persian and Babylonian creation myths, the sea was a great goddess who covered the whole earth with chaos. The dry land and plants and animals and human life was only a result of the defeat of this sea goddess. And what entered into the world then was order displacing chaos. In the Bible, we have waters of chaos covering the land, but when God brings order by calling dry land into existence, he then brings life, plants and animals and his image bearers, human beings, into existence. So, no matter what your religious background, the original hearers of Daniel, whether they were Persian or Babylonian or Israelite, they were thinking, this is terrifying. This scene seems to be describing something in which chaos is coming back over the land, back over the world. And what is causing this chaos is human king kingdoms represented as beasts. They're coming out of the chaos. Their evil ways are bringing chaos back into the earth. These kings and kingdoms represented by freakish beasts are chaos personified. In God's ordered world, lions are lions, and eagles are eagles. They're not, they're not mashed together and combined. But these kingdoms and kings are horrible distortions of creation. And, and what this is telling us is that when humans who are made in God's image fail at our mandate to care for creation and to care for each other, we bring chaos and death and destruction into God's ordered world. From what we know about the prophet Jeremiah, we know that Babylon was sometimes described as a lion and an eagle. We also know that when Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a beast in Daniel, was it four, he grew feathers like an eagle. So just, just like the head of the statue in Daniel 2, the first beast in Daniel 7 is almost unanimously understood to represent Babylon. But there is a ton of debate and speculation that surrounds the identities of the other three beasts. And, and what I want to ask, kind of rhetorically, is does the meaning of the text require us to identify specific kingdoms or kings with these beasts in Daniel 7? If we pay attention to the strategies I outlined just a few moments ago for reading Apocalyptic, I would say no, it does not require us to get specific on those details. And I would go even further to say that trying to, trying to identify the other beasts with Greece or Rome or Iraq or Russia or North Korea or the United States is simply to impose a particularity on apocalyptic passage that was never intended to carry that load. So then... What is the point of this passage? Well, the first point is that human evil is not only real, it has catastrophic effects on the world. 
You know, most of us like to think we're pretty good people. Most leaders like to think that, hey, I'm doing right by most people that I'm called to serve. This is why books like White Fragility are so hard for most, especially white people, to swallow. No one wants to think that they could be racist. No one wants to think that they could somehow benefit from the misery of other people. But what Daniel 7 is saying is that not only things are, are things worse than what we want to believe, but that worldly kingdoms are grossly outside the will of God. That we, as a human people, are horribly fallen. And that we're living in a succession of beastly empires, and in many ways, we are part of the problem, both as a society and as individuals. Daniel 7 should horrify and shock us and even scare us into a healthy sobriety to wake us from any kind of um, misunderstanding about our place in, in this world. But I have yet to deal with the heart of this chapter, Daniel 7, 9 through 14. This section of Daniel is called by some the center of gravity of the whole book. Others call it the Gospel of Daniel. Amidst the evil and chaos of the world, Daniel's vision now shifts to one called the Ancient of Days. Using stock images of the white vestments representing purity, a throne representing authority, fire representing purity, a book of accounts for humans and their, and their kingdoms, it's open before him. This is a heavenly court scene. And the apocalypse reveals that God is very much aware of the evil in the world and that he is going to bring evil to account, that they will be judged and they will be found wanting. But the vision continues, and the most horrible human evil keeps boasting and running its mouth even in the presence of God when all of a sudden one like a son of man appears. And what is the son of man doing? He's riding on a cloud. Now, in this picture, we have a human being riding on a cloud. That is something only God does in Scripture. This man-god will be given the dominion of the whole world, and it will never be taken away. The Ancient of Days will remove the leadership of the evil empires and give it to the Son of Man. In the book of Revelation, we learn that the Son of Man is none other than Jesus. Where humans have failed and would bring the world back into chaos, Jesus acts as the new Adam, summing up all of our storylines in one person— the one whom God has sent to set things right and to make all things new. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy pulls back the curtain to reveal that Oz was just a sham, run by a small, incompetent man behind the curtain. The whole world of Oz is run by a fool with a bunch of levers and buttons, but no real power. In Daniel 7, we have good news. The man behind the curtain is the Son of Man. He's worthy. He is able. He's Jesus the Christ. No matter what we are going through, we can have hope and certainty that despite the appearances, Jesus is in control and will put an end to the evil and destruction and death of the world. Oh, this is such good news. There's so much else to say about this passage. 
we can get to it in the Q&A. But I want to leave you with that center of gravity of this book. The gospel in the book of Daniel is that God has dealt with evil. And in Jesus, all things will be well.